Hey, welcome to day 347 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Esther chapters 6 through 8, Psalm 142, and Revelation chapter 4. Okay, so just to um, remind you where we left off yesterday in the book of Esther, Esther has um, been uh, recruited to speak on behalf of her people who are in danger of really having a, a mass slaughter carried out against them uh, at the instigation of Haman, who is at this point King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes' um, top advisor, uh, vizier we might call him. And uh, she has uh, gone into the king, done this bold move, which uh, could have cost her her life, uh, but he showed favor to her and allowed her to grant a request. And she said, I'd like to throw a feast. Uh, you know, she doesn't go directly for what the request is uh, because she's she's trying to increase her chances of being heard as much as possible, right? Like she's not going to roll the dice that if she went in there and made the request of the king that he would rescind the, the idea of his his top advisor. So she's actually going to throw two feasts from what we can tell for both both of them, and uh, we're told of two of them. Were there more planned? It's hard to know, but so, yeah, so here we are just before the second feast. The Jewish people all over the city and really throughout the empire are in a state of mourning over this decree that has been made um, against them, and uh, also, remember, Haman's anger against Mordecai has been stoked, and based on some of his friends and his wife's advice— He's built gallows on which he plans to hang Mordecai, and so stuff is uh, stuff is pretty tense right now. And then you get verse one of chapter six. On that night, the king could not sleep, and so we start seeing now here a bunch of coincidences unfolding, um, very improbable events. And as I said, that is one of the. Um, one of the key ways that the book clues us in to the work of God that is in the background, even though the book seemingly purposely doesn't mention God in it, that we might see these things and just see the hand of providence. And I, I suppose I should say a word that uh, this book is calling to attention to coincidences, right, and pointing to the hand of God in it, as I just said. Um, that does not mean that coincidences reveal God's will for us, right? Like this is in hindsight, looking back at how God worked. It's not people seeing uh, a coincidence and thinking, oh, that must be what God wants me to do. And I always tell people like, if all you need is a coincidence in your life um, to get you to decide to do something, it's it's not too too hard for, for Satan to derail it or, or whatever, right? Like that coincidence happened for all sorts of different reasons. They might be, even even if we want to say they're orchestrated spiritually, um, it's there. We're not told in the Bible to like read coincidences as a way for determining what the Lord wants us to do. So I think we need to acknowledge the difference between pointing them out in hindsight and reading them as a ter- as a form of I want to call stop short of calling it divination, but essentially you know divining the intent of God and maybe specific instruction for our instructions for our lives. Like it is much sounder to go off, of course, off of biblical revelation, off of the advice of trusted friends, 
um, and people who are mature in our faith, and just prayerful wisdom. So the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And we've been introduced to that book. Remember that? when Back in chapter 2, when uh, Mordecai stopped the assassination of King Ahasuerus, that good deed was recorded in these volumes. And so, um, and you know, it was kind of forgotten, nothing, he had not gone rewarded. So here's sleepless King Ahasuerus reading or having this read to him. And it comes across the portion where, Morga, where Mordecai had informed about the two eunuchs who had sought to, uh, to, to harm Ahasuerus. And the king starts thinking about it and he says, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? I mean, his name is in there, right? Um, and uh, the young men say to him, nothing has been done for him. And so the king decides something's got to be done. So who's going to be the guy to do it? And he says, well, who's who's in the court? And Haman, a good servant of the uh, of the king as he is, is there. And he's actually come, it says, to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows. Notice there that coincidence, right? He has just by chance not been able to sleep. He's just been by chance decided to have those books read to him, just by chance read the part where Mordecai is the subject, um, just by chance having his heart moved, and then just by chance, of course I'm using chance here a bit sarcastically, right? Um, the 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 man who wants to kill him is outside, who is actually there to talk to him, talk to the king about having Mordecai killed. So you've got this contrast between the real honor that um, that uh, that that Mordecai deserves versus the petty vendetta for being slighted. Because you you got to think back at how like at how treacherous this guy Haman is, right? Like. It's simply because this one guy wouldn't bow to him. He has manipulated the king, his his easy, his easily manipulated king, um, into issuing a decree that the guy's entire people would be killed. Like this guy is just pure evil, and um, and so you have a strong contrast here between these two officials in the Persian court, Mordecai and Haman. So. Um, the king's young men, you know, call attention to Haman. Haman comes in and without telling him, you know, who he's got in mind, he said, the king says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman, of course, not surprisingly thinks that he's talking about him. And so, you know, he's like, who would the king, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And, uh, and the, and Haman was like, well, for, for this man, how about you bring out royal robes, which you have worn, um, and and the horse, a horse that you've ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Yes, it very much does read as if the crown is going on the horse. <laughs> and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Uh, of course, wanting it for himself, but we'll see whose hand this actually goes to. Um, let them dress him up like this and lead him on the horse, through the square of the city, proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor, you know, fully expecting that this will be lavished on him. And so the king was like, good idea, Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, um, 
and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. And I love the way it's told here. Actually, I love what's not told here. Like we're not told of Haman's response, right? It's leaving it to our imagination what this man must have been thinking at this time. So Haman dutifully takes the robes and the horse and notice he's the subject of these two verbs. He dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city. This man whom Haman like hates more than anything, now he's doing this for him, proclaiming before him. And every time he must have said it, it must have been like like nails on the chalkboard. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then uh, after this, Mordecai goes back to where he's been pretty much this whole story, back to the king's gate. And Haman hurries home, um, mourning with his head covered, uh, crying back to the, the people that had advised him about the gallows, his wife and his friends, and tells them all about it. And, um, and, and they say to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And what's behind that statement is unclear. Have they perhaps heard of Daniel? Have they heard perhaps heard of other stories and about and about his God who delivers his people and judges his enemies. So while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman, Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So come on, we got to go. Don't forget about the feast you're supposed to be at. And so they go in to the feast and on the second day, because this is the second feast, they were drinking wine after the feast. Okay, and so Haman probably like, all right, that was like the most humiliating thing ever, but now at least we could do this. And uh, they're drinking wine, which is what they like to do, right? They're always drinking wine. And the king said to Esther, what's your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Just like what he had said in chapter five, verse three and six. And then Queen Esther answers, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, um, and remember, he's asked for uh, like two things in his wording, right? Uh, your request, take, and your wish, take. And that's just how I'm translating them here. That's they, they basically mean the same thing. They're basically both a request. And for those, those two things, so first... For my request, Beshelati, and uh, I, I would like my life granted to me. And for my wish, Bevakashti, um, I would really like it if uh, my people would be spared. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be, and there are the three things that Haman had requested back in 313 to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, I would have been silent. I wouldn't be asking this of you. And uh, our affliction is not our affliction is not to be compared to the loss of the king. Like I know this would mean you losing some face here. And you know, if it were just us being sold into slavery, as if that's a small thing, I wouldn't be here. But he's asking to destroy and annihilate us. Um, and of course the king, remember her identity as a Jewish person is secret. And so this is news to the king that he's among the Jewish people. So Ahasuerus says to Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? And who has dared to do this? Like to harm your people? Like notice how thick he is. Well, 
think back. It's not hasn't been too long. What is the what is the people that you have been um, duped into uh, into permitting their destruction? And Esther says, "A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman." And you can imagine Haman with his wine glass up to his lips, uh, how he must have felt in this moment. And the king arises in his wrath, and um, and and from his drinking, right? Finally, something to get this king away from his drinking, and goes into the garden. And uh, and so now it's just Haman and Esther in there, and Haman starts begging Queen Esther, and um, you know while the king's out in the uh, in the palace garden, maybe thinking about what to do or or talking to some guys that he's got out there, and uh, and he's begging for for Esther and uh, for his life, and the king returns, and as he's returning. Haman is apparently like physically close to her, like it says falling on the couch where she was. And, you know, a king who's this mad sees that and sees what what's he assaulting the queen in my presence in my own house. And uh, so that's, you know, the final like coincidence here. There's just bad timing of where Haman's body was when the king came back in. And as the word left the ma- the mouth of the king, again, it becomes clear what he was doing in the garden they covered Haman's face. And then um, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, uh, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high, just so you know, King Ahasuerus. And this reminds us that not only is you know he setting to eradicate the queen and all of her people, but he's also... Uh, made built gallows for this man who just received this super high honor from the king. And so, you know, Ahasuerus finally realizes whom he's dealing with. And so he has Haman hung on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Again, a very good example of this, a very, very literal example of this idea of the wicked being ensnared in the traps that they laid. And it tells us the wrath of the king abated. But there's still work to be done. So in chapter eight, um, uh, um, we we see how Ahasuerus is honoring Esther and honoring Mordecai. So Haman's entire estate is given to Esther, and Mordecai comes before the king. And um, you know, because by now Esther has told the king, Mordecai is actually my uncle. And uh, the king gives him his signet ring, just like he had given it to Haman. So he's apparently elevated now to Haman's position. And um, and uh, Esther sets Mordecai over the house of Haman that has been given to her. So now Mordecai holding that signet ring and living in the house, both of which used to be Haman's. And Esther then speaks again to the king. Um, she she falls at his feet and weeps and pleads with him because this plan is still, right? This decree has still gone out, right? So like all that stuff about Haman's estate and the signet ring, that's all well and good, but nothing's been done about what Esther had initially appealed for, right? Her life and the life of her people. And, um, and you know, again, this kind of reinforces that characterization of the king as kind of a dense guy who's not really... Um, not really all with it, um, and other people are making decisions and things for him. So it's kind of up to Esther to undo this plot. So 
<clears throat> you know, once again, he holds out the golden scepter to her and she rises and stands before him and tells him, uh, you know, and, and notice her, the, the amount of respect or um, submission that she's given with all these ifs, right? If it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, like anything you could think of to to gain a king's favor and just increasing these chances that she will absolutely be be heard. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, uh, which he wrote to destroy the Jews. For how can I bear to see the calamity coming to my people and the destruction of my kindred? And um, so Ahasuerus answers, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman. They've hanged him on the gallows. But you may write as you please with regarding with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Um, that's a little bit confusing exactly what he means by that cannot be revoked. This does recall um, uh, Daniel chapter 6 verse 12 where remember they the um, the the advisors to the king right are um, basically say that you know uh, Daniel's got to go you know you wrote this thing that that uh, that anybody who doesn't bow down and worship this image that you've made has to be fed to the lions and the king's edict cannot be revoked and um, it's even been suggested in uh, chapter one verse nineteen of this book of Esther where the initial thing about you know king's edict kind of stands. I think what's being uh, indicated here are like basically two things. Um, number one, that, you know, as she had said earlier, remember when she was like, if it was just a matter of slavery, um, our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So, you know, doing something to change this, it's not worth you losing face, king. You know, your power is so important and it's so important that people respect your authority and your edicts that if you go back on them, you'll be seen as fickle. I suggested that that was kind of the same thing that was going on with Daniel in the lion's den. But also, if you look at what happens, particularly up through chapter nine, um, it doesn't quite uh, appear as if the king's original order is in fact revoked, only that this one is given in addition to it and that this one's uh, command supersedes it, that the Jewish people are given the permission and perhaps the resources to defend themselves so that this doesn't happen. And so anybody who might have taken action against them needs to know that it's not, this isn't going to be something that you're just going to be able to walk in and do but this is now danger to you, and in fact, you can be destroyed and annihilated for doing that. This seems to be how these two decrees are working with one another. At least that's how it seems to me. So the king's scribes are then summoned, and an edict is written, and uh, and with Mordecai's help, this edict is written um, uh, to, again, all of the big head honchos that the initial edict was written to, the satraps, governors, officials, um, each in its own script, each in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language, because it's going to be important now, the, as we'll see, that the Jews know what is written in this edict. And um, it is written in the name of the king, sealed with his signet ring, 
And uh, letter and notice the urgency here. The letters are sent by mounted couriers riding on swift uh, horses. Right, this needs to get to them soon. Um, that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. So these horses go tearing throughout the empire, delivering these um, the copies of this edict, um, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force that might attack them. Okay, so it's not only reversing the decree, but if anybody is just thinks Haman's decree is just so awesome and might still want to try to do it, they have the right to self-defense. So presumably, right, if a Jewish person has, is found with blood on his hands on this particular day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the day that the massacre is supposed to happen, chapter 3, verse 13, then um, then they're, they're not to be arrested or they're, they're to be seen as acting in self-defense. And it says that, you know, on that day, the Jews were to be ready to take vengeance on their enemies. So if anyone reveals themselves as, a, as an enemy, they, they are allowed to defend themselves. And uh, Mordecai then goes out from the presence of the king in his royal robes, uh, his a golden crown, a, a robe of fine linen and purple. And uh, it just, you have all this rejoicing in the city as he goes out. Um, the Jews, it said, it says, had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king, king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and, and a feast and a holiday. And, uh, and it even says that many of the peoples of the country declared themselves to be Jews for the fear of the Jews, it says, had fallen on them. And so for this moment in time, uh, the Gentiles throughout the Persian Empire agree that it is indeed a very good thing to be Jewish. Okay, let's go now to Psalm 142. So Psalm 4, 142 is called two things. It is called a maskil and it is called a tefillah. Now the tefillah is a prayer um, and uh, the ma- maskil is, you know, we've encountered those in Psalms before. Um uh, you might remember the maskilim from Daniel 12, 3, right? Those who will receive eternal life. Uh, and we noted there that it's got to do with like wisdom or understanding. So it might be like a psalm of understanding or wisdom or perhaps a skilled sk- psalm. Ultimately, these these psalm title terms are often very difficult to discern as um, I've emphasized before. So we can't really know for sure. And it's not as if like the characteristic of this psalm like is particularly wisdomy. Um, so, you know, it's hard to know exactly what's meant by that. But this is of David. This is attributed to David um, when he was in the cave, probably referring to the cave in which he hid in 1 Samuel 24, 1 through 3. Remember that charming event where Saul comes in to relieve himself and David spares his life. So he's hiding from Saul. Um, it could also be that there's also a, a brief foray into the cave of Adullam in uh, 1 Samuel 22, 1. It, it could be that as well. But either way, he's being pursued by his enemies, and his enemy is Saul. Uh, you might also recall, and if not, I'll remind you right now, that uh, Psalm 57 also has basically the same context. Now, that psalm is much more triumphant in its tone, whereas this one, it ends with a little bit of hope at the end, but it's very much a plea to God and um, you know a heartfelt expression of 
his situation to God here. So he says, with my voice, I cry out to Yahweh. I plead for mercy from Yahweh. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. And I love that, right? This is a tefillah. So it is a a model for prayer, no doubt. I mean, a lot of Psalms are even without saying it, so much more this one. And I love this idea of pouring out our his complaint and his trouble, um, which of course is delineated in the rest of the Psalm, and there might be other stuff he has in mind as well, but I think that's important to remember in prayers, right? That we can sometimes pray with kind of closed hearts, um, but God wants to know what's troubling us. God wants to know what our frustrations are, even if we're not expressing them in theologically perfect categories, right? That those the raw things that we're going through, they they belong on the ground before the Lord um, with us, us, you know, lifting up our eyes in prayer for him to help us. Uh, so just a reminder to be brutally honest in your prayers to God. I always say he can handle that. And that we can be quite confident is what he wants us to be. So when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. Okay. When I don't have energy, I, I, when I'm, when I have no more gas left in the tank, you know what's going on with me. In the path where I walk, you know they've hidden a trap for me. Okay. His, his enemies are out to get him. Saul is out to get him. Look to the right and see. There's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. So he's got, he feels as if he's got nowhere to turn and there's, he's, he's got no companions to help him. I cry to you, O Yahweh. Once again, what he said in verse one, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So I, I take my refuge in you, no matter where I am, no matter what my trouble is, you are a refuge to me. And you are the thing that like is mine in the entire world. The, the, nothing in this world is truly mine, but you are mine. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors. They're too strong for me. Bring me out of prison um, that I may give thanks to your name. That, that too informs our prayers, right? That That is a legit thing to mention in our prayers, right? Like, Lord, will you act in this way so that your name may be praised, so that I may give thanks to you, so that others may hear and glorify you, right? Those are, I love how the psalm teaches us and reminds us how to pray. And then, as I said, this psalm does end it with a sliver of hope. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And so, right, like you will send your people, you will send those who are righteous, um, and I, I do have confidence in that. Lord God. All right, let's look now at Revelation chapter four. So we're starting to get into it. Um, so this is actually we we what we've read up till now comprises what I consider to be the first vision of Revelation, and it kind of depends on how you count them. But I see four visions. So this is the second of them, and this one is actually the longest. It goes all the way up through the end of chapter sixteen. And the reason I say it seems to me to best to view it as one large composite vision is for two reasons. Number one, it's setting. So uh, here, uh, John is is brought into the throne room of God. So and there he remains until he's whisked away with by an angel at the beginning of chapter seventeen. And then also, 
like just the content of this vision, okay? So we're going to have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And um, the seventh, uh, and they're all connected because the seventh seal is unfolded and then and that's the content of that seal are the seven trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet is blown and the content of that trumpet is are the bowls. And so they kind of like fit into one another like Russian nesting dolls. And that, again, continues, although there are some breaks um, up through the end of chapter 16. And so he says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So that's what he sees, a door open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Uh, now that, that was the voice from chapter one, verse 10, which commanded him to write the letters in the first place. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So he is invited into heaven. And hey, it helps that he's not having to physically like jump up to heaven or something, right? Because he says that once I was in the spirit and, uh, and that's how he goes up. Now, at this point, the major interpretations of Revelation really start to diverge um, from, from one another. And if I know some people buy books that I recommend on this, and I'm glad that you do. And so if you want a really cool book on Revelation, I would very much recommend C. Marvin Pate's book, Reading Revelation, Pate, P-A-T-E. And what this book does, it's like a soft cover book. It's like a, it's like a workbook looking thing. Um, and it's got these columns on every page. And the, it just goes through the entire book of Revelation in these columns. And in the first column, you get the Greek with an, an English translation. And then you get like four main, in, the, the probably the four main interpretive views on um, uh, uh, that, yeah, at least four of the main interpretive views, like the ones that I listed. So the, the next column will give you the preterist interpretation, right, which sees everything as unfolding pretty much all within the first century. You get the historicist view in the next column, which sees the events throughout Christian history. You've got the dispensational futurist view, which I'll say a little bit more about in a minute here. And then you've got the idealist um position in the final column. So it's just a very handy tool if you're like, I wonder how this school of thought tends to interpret this part of Revelation. It's not to say that everybody within those schools would agree with everything as it's laid out there, but in general, you know, it's a it's a pretty handy resource to have in understanding and being to look up being able to look up the different perspectives. Um now um so the as I said, the views kind of diverge here. So the preterists, for example, will see the seals, the trumpets, and then the bowls as three stages of uh, Jerusalem uh, slash, you know, Israel's fall um, by, at the hands of the Romans, particularly the general Titus, who becomes the emperor. Uh, so you've got like the the seals would be the north, the attack on the north, which would be Galilee and Samaria. The, the trumpets, which would be the attack on Judea, and then the bulls, which are the final, the bulls of God's wrath, which are the final siege of Jerusalem. Um, however, on on the other hand, the dispensational view, it's a little bit di more difficult to get your head around, but I'll try to explain it pretty, pretty quickly here. Um, so what did he just hear? He just heard a trumpet or a voice like a trumpet, right? 
And where else do we hear a trumpet? Oh, yeah, 1 Thessalonians 4. That's when the rapture happens. Further, we have the command, come up here. And so many dispensational interpreters see that as the church being raptured up, come up here, right? And um, and then the unfolding of this vision, the uh, seals, trumpets, and bowls are then descriptions of what is happening during the seven-year Great Tribulation, right? That, that week of Daniel that we looked at from Daniel chapter 9, according to their interpretation. You probably know that I'm not in particular agreement with that. I'm just telling you how, how that is. So that would be the whole second vision. And then for them, the harlot is judged, the beast is judged, and you have the fall of Babylon, followed by the return of Christ in chapter 19, during which Israel is saved. And um, and then Jesus establishes his thousand-year reign physically on earth, during which Israel he's reigning from Jerusalem uh, literally fulfilling the Davidic covenant, right? I'll, someone will reign, my son will reign on your throne, like literally. And um, during this, they see the land promises to Israel being fulfilled. We've seen pre- plenty of those in the Old Testament. And after that thousand year reign, Satan is defeated and you have the great white throne judgment. And uh, one thing that they'll point out uh, often is that at the at this point in Revelation, oh no, do I have the hiccups? Um, <laughs> there's no further mention of the church um, until we return with Christ when he returns in chapter 19, and we're the armies of heaven clothed in white linen. Now, I, I would point out that although the word church, true, is not mentioned uh, beyond this point, you do have saints um, mentioned throughout this section. Um, but then again, you know, they probably respond, well, those could be Jewish believers during the period of the tribulation, uh, but you know there are saints on earth. I, I would point out. So I don't. I don't know if like that. I don't know how strong that argument actually is. Uh, and, and it is kind of an argument from silence, right? Uh, the, really, the reason, if I have to underscore again, that I'm kind of skeptical towards this way of seeing things, and it is less popular generally today in biblical interpretation than it used to be, is how would you get this from Revelation alone, right? They're basically saying, okay, we're convinced of a rapture based on 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and then they take that conviction and they read it onto Revelation and assume that, you know, that event, which is not mentioned in Revelation, um, just like there's also no land promise fulfillment mentioned in chapter 20 either, right? It's just, these are just, uh, it's a grid that can fit over this. But my problem is, is that, you like i don't see that arising from revelation itself especially given the fact that as i noted in first thessalonians 4 particularly in verse 17 when the quote unquote rapture is mentioned there's no designation as to when it happens with with respect to um its location compared to other end times events so you know it's it's very it's a very creative way it's gained a lot of adherence over the years uh, it still captures the minds of a lot of uh, faithful, like Christ-loving brothers and sisters in Christ. I just think that it's a bit of a. I'm not. I'm not willing to make that interpretive move, that hermeneutical move, where I'm going to uh, impose that the the concept of a rev of a rapture onto Revelation, especially again since 
that passage can be read in several different ways. It could just be read as the church welcoming Christ back to church, and there there is an argument that that actually is explicitly what it says. And and either way, it doesn't say, and then there's going to be seven years of tribulation. So that's a quick rundown of why I feel skeptical towards that position. <clears throat> so let's look at some of the details here. So he's invited to come up, and he is. it says, come up here and I will show you you what must take place after this. And he is drawn up into the throne room of God. And uh, what he sees is a site that draws from various parts of the Bible. Okay, so there is one seated on the throne. And though he is unnamed here, uh, not only does it become very clear very soon that this is God himself, but simply the the designation without any other qualification, right? One seated on the throne. It's just obvious right there who that is, that this is God Almighty. Um, and his appearance is described as that of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow. So uh, the rainbow, um, thinking back through scripture, where, where, where do we encounter that? Well, in Genesis 9, that is the sign of the covenant with Noah and uh, and essentially all creation. And this is God's covenant with creation to never again destroy the earth um, as, he, as he had done in the days of Noah, ne- never to bring that cataclysm again, even though within that context, the reality of sin is still very apparent. Like in the middle of making the covenant in chapter 821 of Genesis um, it talks about how how man's heart is still only evil from his youth, and um, and when you know, also for example in nine five right there in the middle of it with the the value placed on on human life that God will require uh, the lifeblood from the one who sheds blood and uh, all this to say that the rainbow has this imagery kind of built into it right that 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 the throne that the rainbow surrounding God's throne is uh, is a symbol of that that God is withholding his judgment from the world um and around the throne are 24 thrones with 24 elders so you're starting to see these concentric circles right um so you've got the the rainbow the 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads and there's a good deal of question because the, these elders or el- the elders will appear again in Revelation in several scenes. And there, it's worth asking, you know, are these human beings like human elders um, or are these angelic individuals? Um, so on the side of seeing these as human beings, uh, they are wearing crowns, right? And we've already seen crowns as the symbol of eternal life given to uh, God's people, uh, both in the letter to Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 10, and in the letter to Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 11. Although that's not finally decisive because there are others who wear crowns in Revelation like a conquering angel does in 6.12 and – or 6.2 rather, and um, Jesus himself does in 14.14. 14. Their garments are the, the garments of those who are from heaven, but again, that that can apply both to human beings and to angelic beings. 
Um, and the thrones, remember, we've seen already seen a little bit about how um, we are invited to reign with Christ. So that, you know, was not unheard of, right, in, in, a, in a heavenly vision that human beings would be there. So none of that is particularly strong evidence for the human being interpretation. However, the number of them, I think, is much uh, leans much more strongly in favor of that interpretation uh, because remember how I've mentioned that in apocalyptic literature, numbers are almost always, if not always, symbolic. And in the book of Revelation, the number 12 and its multiples um, seem to seem to um, symbolize God's people. So um, there are 12 tribes and 12 apostles is, you know, when the numbers are, are together, either multiplied or added together. They're like that. For example, the 144,000, both in chapters 7 and 14, right? That's 12 times 12 times 1,000. Um, check my math if you want. And then uh, the gates of the New Jerusalem, right, have have the names of the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. So that would be, you know, that's what's in favor of viewing them as human beings. Um, in terms of angelic beings, right, like the, the elders in Revelation do have a revelatory role. This is ap- apocalyptic literature. They act as guides. And at, and at several points in the heavenly scenes in Revelation, the elders seem to be fulfilling that role. Like in chapter 5, verse 5, what we'll see, which we'll see tomorrow, um, an elder announces ver- something very important to John um, in 7.13. He is there kind of acting as a bit of a—there's one there acting as a bit of a guide. There's also a bunch of important ways in which elder the elders do seem to be distinguished from redeemed human beings— um, so, like, they hold the golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints in 5.8. Um, uh, really strong in this respect, I think, is 14.1 through 3, which speaks of a, a new song being sung before the throne and before the four creatures and before the elders. And that's being sung by the 144,000. So there, the elders and the 144,000 seem to be distinct. Um, and as for their thrones here... Uh, thrones do seem to refer to spiritual authorities elsewhere. So think, for example, in Colossians 1.16, where Paul writes, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers of authorities. And there is, you know, most likely talking about spiritual beings there. As I said, also the uh, the white linen that they wear um, is also also makes sense with angels, and even the number twenty four can kind of be explained in that we've already seen how the angels represent the churches, so they could be representing the people of God there in the throne room of God. So, on balance, I think the angelic interpretation is a little bit stronger, but uh, see, I could see it could go either way. Um, so. Following these concentric circles again, you've got the rainbow, you've got the 24 thrones um, with the 24 elders, and you've got a a storm theophany going on, very similar to the experience at Mount Sinai. In fact, not only do you have the flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder before the throne, coming out from before the throne, but the whole scene is surrounded by a sea of glass-like crystal. And uh, in Greek, the word there is hualinos, which actually means translucent, not transparent. 
Like if we think of glass and crystal, right? You think of something that you have no problem seeing through. Um, however, glass back then looks a lot different and it's, you know, it's, it's much cloudier. It's got, you know, light reflect refracting through it and stuff. The, the kind of picture here is where like, if you were to shine a super bright light on the other side, you would see it and you would see it faintly like that kind of idea is what I think is being communicated by the glass. And the reason I mentioned that in conjunction with the storm is think about Mount Sinai, right? Where there's uh, there's thunder and a cloud o- over the top of the mountain and, and lightning and fire and stuff. And there in Exodus 24, 9 and 10, um, Moses, Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, okay, the two sons of Aaron, um, or two of the sons of Aaron, and the 70 elders of Israel are up on Mount Sinai, and it tells us they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And so, right, so above them is this uh, this firmament, right, that's semi-transparent, and God is on the other side of it. And so here it's like you're, you're on that side, right? Like that John is on that side, and he's seeing this. Um, you get the same kind of idea with the um, when God reveals himself to Ezekiel initially in the first chapter of his book, like in chapter 1, verse 22, where it says, Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal. And um, I should also mention that there are here the seven torches of fire, which again says, and I've noted this verse before, are the seven spirits of God, probably denoting God's perfect spirit. And so if you just kind of like imagine this scene, right, it's it's beautiful and it's, it's extremely just powerful and awe-inspiring that, uh, you know, when it calls it a glass sea, it's not like just like, you know, 10 feet or so of glass. Like uh, you could pick, like if you were to look out onto the Mediterranean Sea, like that's what to envision. And and out over it, you see flashes of lightning and there's pails of thunder coming. And there are the 24 uh, uh, thrones of the elders. And, and there is the rainbow signifying God's peace with creation. And there in the center of it all, is the one seated on the throne. And um, and not only this, but also on each side of the throne, so here probably closest to the throne, probably closer than the elders, are four living creatures. And we've seen th- these also accompanying God. These are the cherubim, um, the, the, these composite animals that often accompany the throne room of God. And indeed, this is what is symbolized with the Ark of the Covenant and the mobile throne chariot of Ezekiel. And here they're not really described as composite, but it's pretty clear that that's what they are. They have the elements that are typically associated associated with cherubim. So they have things like one of them is a lion. One of them is like, like an ox. Notice the like language here also. Uh, one has the face of a man, and one is like an eagle in flight. And and uh, so, you know, of course, there's a bunch of places we could look to that, whether it be Ark of the Covenant, Temple iconography, the Garden of Eden, uh, Ezekiel's vision. Uh, but they're also—and and like Ezekiel's vision, they have on their wings—they're all winged, 
<clears throat> and their wings are covered with eyes on both sides, uh, symbolizing their all-seeingness. And um, but but also like another very key passage, they have six wings, and that is similar. That is reminiscent of the seraphim that uh, Isaiah sees in Isaiah six uh, during his commissioning when he sees the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up. And like those seraphim, what do they never cease to say, John says, day and night? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is essentially what the seraphim cried out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And here, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Notice that designation given to him in chapter 1, verse 4. Only here you have the correct temporal order, right? Because there it's is, was, is to come. Now it's was, is, is to come. And as they're singing God's praises constantly, night and day, never ceasing to say this, as they say this, the, the as they give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, John still insists on calling him, even though he's been named there by the creatures. It's like John doesn't even dare to say his name almost. Um, um, every Whenever they give glory to him, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and also worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before him, right? That all things are from him and to him. And they cry out, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So there, the very strong statement of God's uh, having created the entire world, having made all that exists. Um the final thing that I would just want to note here is that there are a number of elements of this vision, um, and which will continue into the next chapter, which have a, has a lot of um, similarities to um, the vision of Daniel chapter 7, and uh, not surprisingly, right, another vision of the Ancient of Days on, on his throne with fiery flames coming from it and a stream of fire. Issue, issuing out and um, the, there thou, a thousand thousands serve him ten thousand times ten thousand standing before him a court sitting in judgment and the books are open and the books will soon be open here but that is what we will look at tomorrow but for now I just want to say thank you for being with me and I very much look forward to being with you again tomorrow and until then keep reading scripture take care and bye-bye.